Hello there, welcome to the Oblivious Maximus podcast for another week. I am your host, Aaron Osborne. Thank you for listening. Glad to be back, fanging it, doing it weekly, trying to do it weekly. Have had some cool people, got some cool people coming up, looking forward to doing more of them. So uh, pay attention if you like this and the previous ones, I guess. This week, my guest is Lincoln Lefevre. Um, he and his band, The Insiders, just put out a record on Poison City called Come Undone. Um, and they got some shows coming up, which I'll plug real quick because Link forgot to do it. Uh, August 18th at the Gasso in Melbourne. August 25th at the Republic Bar in North Hobart, according to Facebook. And... August 26th at the Royal Oak Hotel in Launceston. If you're at the Royal Oak Hotel, you know, to see Link, good on you. Please uh, say a prayer for the upstairs stairwell that I exist decided to attempt um, to have a scrum in at one point when we're all drunk. And someone who's talked on this podcast one time was naked and peed on their balcony. So, cheers, the Royal Oak in Launceston. Anyway, enough about my dumb things. Link was great. We had a chat at the Empress, a pub. Um, It was fun. And yeah, we just talked about music as this podcast goes. And uh, yeah, things that he's got coming up, things that he's been doing, things that he's excited about. It was cool. I'm glad that this is becoming fun and enjoyable to do again and I've had cool people hit me up and I got some cool people lined up so I'm looking forward to doing more of them um as always give us a follow on Facebook and Twitter and the gram and just search Oblivious Maximus and you'll find it subscribe on iTunes if you feel like or on SoundCloud or whatever I think at the moment I have 69 followers on SoundCloud which is as everyone knows, is the sex number. Also, to that credit, the next episode will be the sex number. So, I don't know if that's something your juvenile mind finds hilarious, then, you know, celebrate with me. Um, Yeah, I don't know. This is just turned into a real ramble, this one. Uh, Anyway, uh, Mental Cavity are playing in Canberra on the 12th of August. If you want to come see us, um and then we'll do some more stuff soon we got an album it'll be cool stay tuned for that um yeah this is oblivious maximus episode 68 with lincoln lefevre oh actually really quickly at one point during this podcast we were in the beer garden and somebody decided to start playing music on their phone near us it was really it's one of those things when you see two people talking into microphones one would assume you'll just, you know, have a little bit of courtesy. Or just, you know, like, if you want to play music on your phone, go away from the microphones. But, you know, maybe these guys really wanted us to hear whatever song they were playing. So, that's featured, I guess. Um, but thanks to the Empress for having a cool beer garden. No thanks to those dickheads for playing music really close to me. Anyway, this is my own fault for taking microphones into a pub like a flog. But, enjoy! Episode 68 with Lincoln Lefevre. Fucking brutal. Hello, Lincoln. 
podcast. Hey, no worries. Um, okay. How did you first get into music? What was the first thing that sparked you off? So is it like the generic starting point for all the... Uh, yes, it is the generic starting point. No. Uh, um, no, I mean, I like it. It's good. You've got to start somehow. <laughs> and that's how I've chosen to begin these. And, uh... It kind of it's, it sounds it's, uh, it sounds routine. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> I'm glad you can pick that out. Um, my dad played in a rock and roll band in the early '60s called the Silhouettes. Right. And they were essentially a cover band that played songs entirely by the Shadows. <laughs> and that's fantastic. Uh, I mean, they were, like there weren't that many bands. It was them and this other band called the Cravats, and and maybe one or two others. And uh, no, I think they were on like Top of the Pops, really, or something. Some TV show that was on local TV down there. Wow, it was pretty cool. Um, so, unfortunately, he sold his 1962 mint condition Stratocaster in um, 1967 because he had to buy a car. Oh God! Um, but he still had another guitar, and he taught me how to play like this song called "Walk Don't Run" by The Ventures. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we just like noodled around together yeah for a little bit what was the sort of music that was like playing around the house or was it just stuff your dad was like riffing on um this is a fascinating line of discussion and I will continue this shortly um (laughs) but mum didn't really listen to much but dad listened to things like he was right into the shadows and the Beatles yeah a little bit of the Beach Boys definitely like (coughs) Roy Orbison and Buddy Holly okay um so that British melodic British um, early 60s stuff yeah I read an article a couple of years ago this is the tangent that I that, that, that you just kind of triggered <laughs> that's fine <laughs> um, let's go there um, there was an article talking about how and I have no idea what research they could have possibly done to back this <laughs> shit up but they reckon that kids that grew up listening to the Beatles had this innate sense of melody and harmony right uh, later in life but kids that grew up only listening to like when their parents only listened to the Stones and the Doors mm-hmm. had this much more rhythmic uh, I, want, I don't want to say artistic but certainly like less conventional more more rhythmic approach to music that, right. that, that again was, was kind of innate and I'm definitely in the first category yeah uh, like Art music never made sense to me when I was younger. Yeah. But melodics, melo- melody and harmony absolutely yeah. make sense. I would say I fit in the same category. My mum loves the Beatles and definitely... My dad didn't like... My dad never really liked them, but... Or, I'm not going to say that. I've never heard my dad put the Beatles on, but my mum listened to them a lot. My mum played guitar and played piano and would just basically fang through Beatles songs. And so, like, my... I have a similar thing where... Definitely what attracted me to playing music was like, oh, and just listening to music early on was like hooks and like, Absolutely. you know, hearing like an amazing vocal line or something was what really used to suck me in and say, and like with, I, and I think like even before I played guitar, I loved hearing like, it's my favorite example, but just like the, 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 uh, Eric Clapton unplugged Layla solo. <laughs> so good it's like the but I don't know that solo it's not even like I mean 
yeah, it's a solo, but at the same time, it's just like a little melody that he plays over a portion of the song. And then if you compare it to the actual recording of that song, where the solo is like pretty fast and pretty wild and there's keys and everything, but that one just like stripped back. I remember the, the hearing that as a kid and just still now, you know, 20 something years later, that I know like note for note in my head that solo. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Hey, can, so, can you sing? Are you much of a singer? Uh, I mean, I, I can, but I don't actively do it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna hazard a, hazard a guess here and say that you can nail a harmony. I would love to. Yeah. I'll, I like. I mean, and that I think that has to be where it comes from. Then, if, I mean, if that again, as you said, like who knows who did or how they did this study, but I mean, I wouldn't disagree with it. There's something in it. Like I've um. I haven't done a lot of studio recording, yeah. But I've done enough to to know when someone can can not when they can sing or not. But there's a difference between somebody being able to sing and somebody knowing what they're singing. Sure. And when you get a, a singer in and you say, you know, can you sing this line? And they nail it. Mm. I just want to say, you grew up in the Beatles, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> You've heard the Beatles before. I, I don't know what it is. But anyway, that's. I mean, that's. That's sort of how I got started. And I was always encouraged to yeah. to learn instruments and, yeah. and stuff. And what was it like? So you grew up in Tasmania, yeah? Yeah, that's right. And what what was it like at the time in, ter- in terms of like your childhood and going to school and things like that? What sort of impact did music have in um, that? I always loved music and I, I made friends based around our love of different kinds of music. Like when I was in grade five, it was... It was me and a mate sitting up the back of the bus singing Bon Jovi songs. Yeah, um, great. Nailing those harmonies. Nailing the harmonies, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. Um, <coughs> and then, uh, you know, then it was high school and I, you know, I was, in, was into Skid Row yep. and some Poison. <laughs> uh, and, and again, I made, made friends. I, I didn't have like a, cl- a clique or a group, you know. I just yep. hung out in the music room and, and so did some other people. Yeah, sure. And, that, and then they were my friends. <laughs> Uh, you know, started started. We had a band called No Respect. Yep, great. <laughs> and what sort of music with No Respect, boys? Skid Row. Skid Row, great. Bit of poison. <laughs> and, and enough's enough. Yep, good uh, one. Oh, I taught this girl. Um, fast forward it like fifteen years. I'm teaching this college in Hobart. Yeah. This sort of seventeen-year-old girl turns up to my English class wearing a T-shirt that said "Rat." Yep. And I almost laughed at her and said, "Where did you get that?" Like. <laughs> Nobody, they, they would know, nobody liked them at the time. Like, that is, and she just looked me dead in the eye and said, um, they're my favourite band. Wow. <laughs> they're nobody's favourite band, ever. A huge move. Like, they were on my pencil case in year eight. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I think that's like a similar, I, it must be like when, when I, when I was in like year, I guess year 10, we had a, an English teacher, actually, who was like, you know, played in bands and stuff in Canberra. And he was like, I've since found out he was like, you know, a Canberra sort of music guy that everyone knows and things like that. And uh, yeah, in, in year 10, we were all like super into death metal at the time. Me and my friends, all long hair, wearing Morbid Angel shirts and stuff like that. And been listening to, you know, had gotten progressively heavier since like year seven or whatever. And then one day he was like, you know, he came up to me. He's like, "Do you listen to the Melvins at all?" 
And I was like, oh, yeah, like, I know, I know the Melvins. I, like, I've heard this song or that song or whatever. And he was like, yeah, but you really got to, like, listen to the Melvins. And he's like, I'm going to give you, like, these songs, blah, blah. And then I, like, got into these songs and I was like, oh, actually, like, I love this. This is way better than what I'd heard or what I'd been exposed to in the past. And then one day I came in, I came into school and I'd bought a Melvin shirt. And he was just like, I was like, what you're doing right now? He's like, that's exactly me in school, walking in a Melvin shirt with hair way too long, being like super confident that everyone <laughs> thinks I'm cool and all this stuff. And he was like, and, but it was one of those funny things where now, like subsequently many years later, like he sometimes comes to I exist shows in Canberra and stuff. And it's really funny, like to have that conversation him be like, remember when I showed you the Melvins? And I'm like, yep, thanks, dude. <laughs> that is good. Yeah. I had, I had a music teacher that showed me Counting Crows. Yep, very good. Um, and it was influential. I loved that record, but mm. it's nothing as cool as the Melvins. We can't all be supremely cool. Look, and to, to be honest, if someone had to show me something like that, I wouldn't have got it. Yeah. I remember someone bringing a Sonic Youth tape and me listening to it and just going, this is shit. Yeah. I don't get it. I mean, I, I remember the first time I heard Morbid Angel, again, death metal, but the first time I heard it, I think I was in like year seven, I remember thinking like, this is fucking terrible. Like, this is so bad. And then like three years later, we're my like ultimate favorite band. <laughs> and like how it, times changed so quickly for me from liking music that had singing to being totally fine with music not having singing. Can, <laughs> I, can I tell you about my introduction to death metal? Please do. Um, I, I had a drummer in high school called mm-hmm. called Nathan. Yep. And he used to he had this amazing C D collection and, and he used to copy me, make tapes for me all the time. Yeah. And I think he'd copied uh, it was a band called Love Hate. Mm-hmm. Uh, the album's called Blackout in the Red Room. Right. I fucking love that record <laughs> so much. But he must have taped over it was either it was like Morbid Angel or it was Napalm Death. Yep. Uh, it wasn't Testament. It was more death yeah, than, sure. than Thrash. I, I remember that. And I didn't know that he'd taped over this record. Yeah. And the Love Hate album went for about 40 minutes. Yeah. So, yeah, it was about five minutes shy yeah. <laughs> of, a, of a half a cassette tape. <laughs> and so I had I, I must have been in like year eight, year nine, and I had, had like this little tape deck next to my bedside and I put on this Love Hate record and I sort of went to sleep and then all of a sudden I've been woken up to this... <laughs> and I thought the fucking world was ending. I didn't know what was going on. And I just sat bolt upright and I was terrified. Uh, in my sort of half half asleep delirium. Yeah. I, you know, it's like the fucking Satan was coming out of the timber. There you um, go. And he probably was. <laughs> um, yeah, stuff like, like that's I, a similar thing. Like, I remember the first time for sure mum heard me listening to death metal I just coming like barreling into the room and just going what is this turn it off I don't want to hear this and like then after that point I had to like slowly build her into like dealing with what I liked musically <laughs> like, um, like when they uh, when they uh, when the doctors sort of treat you for a, a peanut allergy by <laughs> just giving you just a, a little bit of peanut a little bit of peanut <laughs> You slowly need to. You can remove the EpiPen from your <laughs> living quarters. Was it? Was it a, a, a religious house? Like, were they actually no, no, no. fearing Satan? No, no. no okay. Mum was like, couldn't have cared less about that stuff. She just was like, 
this is terrible music. <laughs> like, the way she, and like, yeah, which is really funny too, because her basically, and maybe this is where like the Beatles thing comes into play. With her, like, music is, it's in the singing. Like, it's in the melody. And yeah, it's in, I like, can relate to that. And I, I, I can too. And then, like, but so, like, death metal and things like that, for me, you find, I find that in the other instruments, obviously, and I find what I like about it in that, I think. And because I still, I think I'm still always very connected to those music, that music with, like, hooks. And if you listen enough to that stuff, you can find the songs that have the hooks and you can find the bands that have you know, the catchy riffs and things like that. And that's where I sort of drew to. But again, like for my mum, to no surprise, but all, you know, if it didn't have that front and centre for her, I don't think, you know, it rung true. Again, I don't know, maybe my mum's come around to death metal in the last couple of years and I just <laughs> don't live with her you anymore. You do a podcast with your mum. <laughs> I have done one with her. It was Amazing. very funny. Yeah. Um, have you heard a band called Glass and Ashes? No. I- I, th- I have a feeling maybe they they had something to do with the Hot Snakes, like maybe that was a band right. before Hot Snakes. But I mean, singing wise, it's kind of it's kind of hardcore. Yeah, uh, it's definitely not melodic. Sure, but riffs like the the riffs are so hooky. Yes, yeah, um, I definitely ripped right off on this new record. But yeah, um, yeah, great, great album. I will have a look into it. Um, so how did how, how did you sort of like? find your feet playing music what was what like hooked you into playing guitar obviously noodling around with your dad but what was what sort of really pushed you into playing it yourself was it school like i know i think no actually like i was at school i was playing the trumpet right i played trombone did you i did indeed very badly but i did i horrified to know what my chops would be like these days (laughs) um and even toward the end of high school, I knew that I didn't really want to play the trumpet. Yeah. I just wanted to play guitar, but I was sort of, I guess, under a bit of pressure to to keep going with it. I got sure. as far as uni, got like six, <coughs> oh, wow. six weeks into uni and went, I don't even like this. Yeah. What am I doing? So there was certainly no sort of pressure from school or, or guiding influence, even from school, to, to play guitar or write songs. Yeah. Um, I just loved it. Yeah. Like, as soon as Dad taught me... <coughs> Uh, a few chords and the basics I just wanted to do more and so while you were playing trumpet and stuff were you playing guitar at home still yeah yeah I was yeah. playing at home yeah I was getting in trouble for practicing guitar instead of practicing trumpet <laughs> but it was, it was never going to change yeah I think the first the first two songs I ever taught myself how to play were uh, That Ain't Bad by Ratcat <laughs> and uh, Wicked Game by Chris Isaac great um, got dad's whammy bar out <laughs> perfect um so from there, I just, I, I just loved doing it. Yeah, I just wanted to keep doing it. I couldn't sing at yeah. that point, and the f- the first time I did try and sing was in front of the school, and I got teased for about a year. Wow, because I was so bad. What did you play? What was the first thing you played in front of an uh, audience? It was, um, it was a by a New Zealand band called Push Push, okay. and the song was called Trippin'. <laughs> the chorus went, um, "I am tripping out on you." Very good. That's that's all I remember. And I <laughs> didn't know what to do, so I just jumped up and down on the spot. Yep. And I got called Skippy for a whole year. How good. I was ahead of my time. The pogo was still yet to come yeah. into fashion. <laughs> so you are claiming credit for that? I claim no credit for anything. <laughs> uh, 
but then I met other guys and well I mean but at that stage I'd met a couple of other guys and started playing in a band together and yeah just I remember always having these what seemed like really lofty goals at the time sure. like I just want to one day play a gig in a in a pub yeah huge achievement tick yeah <laughs> <laughs> and then getting a bit older I oh, just wouldn't it be awesome if you just like play a gig in another state yeah <laughs> yep yep <laughs> done that cool <laughs> But, okay, so that that's another thing. I is I've talked to a couple of people now from Tasmania on this podcast. Was it, was it like a hard task getting yourself away from Tasmania to do stuff? Yeah, it was. I mean, and it, and it came from different fronts. Yeah, for me. Um, I mean, it it is hard in in the sense that it's there's no. Uh, how am I? What am I trying to say? It's not like you can just book a gig and yeah. and get ten people because it it costs. And at that time, it would have cost eight hundred bucks, thousand dollars, yeah, just right. to come over. Yeah. Um, and you know, return flights were, were about that. Yeah. So you had to have things lined up, and none of us had that kind of money. Yeah. Just to throw away and try. So the the only options were to move here really yeah um, well that's what it felt like at the time like you either had to move here or you you know everyone just wanted that one big radio hit that would, that would propel them to start yeah that would that would silver chair them basically <laughs> yeah uh, so Tasmania has a really interesting relationship with national radio mm-hmm. for that reason uh so I don't know and then, you did know, you like, spend a lot of time playing in Tasmania first oh though? yeah absolutely yeah. and like when I started playing my own stuff, we, we had a band called Fell to Aaron in late nineties, I mm-hmm. guess. Even before that, I had a, a couple of things going. Um, the The music scene there was like it existed, yeah, but we weren't a part of it. Sure. Um, and I, I don't know who else you've had on it, and I'd be interested to see sort of how it how it compares to their perspective of it. But in Hobart, there were two or three venues that bands could play at. But I didn't want to play... Like, I wasn't playing metal. Yeah. I wasn't playing um, slint-inspired uh, sort of noise rock or art sure. rock or, or, or nothing Fugazi-sounding. I just wanted to write kind of rock songs like pop songs yeah right almost and there's no there was no room for that and no and and I was kind of considered on a par with the cover bands yeah almost so like there were and again I, I wasn't I didn't grow up listening to this kind of music so I didn't understand Fugazi or Slint or yeah um, Fugazi played at the doghouse in Hobart <laughs> and like it would have been to 150, 200 people, yeah. surely. And I I didn't go because I'd never heard of them and I didn't get it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm looking back now going, what the fuck's wrong Why didn't with I you? go? <laughs> um, but that's cool. You know, you can only understand what you understand. And Yeah. Well, the, I mean, that be, that's the same thing as thinking back, like, you know, why didn't I fucking go do this thing or why don't I go to that thing? It's, you can't. Yeah. It doesn't matter, you know? <laughs> so we... We had to kind of make our own space yeah. in Hobart and find venues where we could play. 
Yeah, we were just playing to our friends to start with, and mm. I think that's how everyone starts. But yeah, the thing was, because we were writing our own stuff, but not um, really challenging underground stuff, mm-hmm. we would get all the supports. Yeah, right. Like we <laughs> supported so many bands. Yeah, when they came to Hobart, um, that that was where we sort of learned our chops and yeah, learned, learned how to sound okay on stage. And like, who are the sort of bands that you're playing with? But you know, my favourite one is we supported Twenty Eight Days twice <laughs> in the space of about three months, and the first one was when Rip It Up had just come out as a single. Great, and we played at the Uni Bar in front of about thirty people, and that's all that turned up. <laughs> Everyone's like, this band sucks. Yeah. What's going on? And then three months later, the place was sold out after the rest of the album came out. Yeah, they just yeah. They just blew up really quickly. Yeah. But we played with, like, a lot of late 90s, early 2000s Australian bands we, we ended up playing with. We played with Grinspoon and Cruel Sea and Tism and Regurgitator and Snout. I fucking love Snout. And they just kind that's of... A, I mean, that's a great way to start, though. Yeah. It's amazing. Like... We still got treated like shit by the promoters. Absolutely. Like we weren't allowed to speak I, to the I, band. I feel like <laughs> I, to this day I'm still getting treated like shit by promoters. So. Only the ones I know are the ones that treat me nicely now. I think we played with Something for Kate like three times. Wow, that's great. Um, but did, did doing that stuff and playing those type of shows, did you find that sort of influencing the music at all? Or was it more... Just your live experience was getting. I think it was bolstered. more the live chops. Like I loved those bands anyway. Yeah. Um, so, actually seeing what they do live, I think was probably more of an influence than yeah. anything else. Um, but absolutely, just as far as chops go. Yeah. Um, you know, from the first couple where you're just getting yelled at by sound engineers and <laughs> and um, every prick after the gig comes up and tells you what what you need to be doing better. You of know, course. Which, which you kind of learn to ignore, but <laughs> but you know, look, it was a, a great way to actually get you get our skills up and actually sound pretty yeah. good. I mean, I think as well, like it's a nerdy thing to talk about, but like you know, the other thing you learn is just like just things about like gear and things about like what you should and shouldn't do with like leads and things <laughs> like this, this like total logistical stuff that like in the grand scheme of things you know people wouldn't consider matters but when you see in a band play live that stuff is really really important like and when you can figure that like i think i remember the first time i ever was like happy with my live guitar sound and i was and i've basically not changed a thing ever since like i've basically just been doing the same thing since then because i was like oh it's taken me like eight years to figure this out now i've got it i'm never gonna change it there used to be uh, a divide between Hobart and Launceston in yeah. terms of gear, and I don't know why. Okay. But it may, it may just be because me and my friends all went to working class schools and sure. had, had working working parents, and we we didn't have money. Yeah. Um, and like we, if we had jobs, it certainly wasn't enough to to buy shit. No. So for years, um, I would either borrow a guitar or. Oh, actually, no. For my 18th birthday, my dad bought me an Epiphone. My parents bought me an Epiphone. It was cool. Thanks, Dad. But uh, my, it, like everyone's amp came from Solder's secondhand shop. And oh it yeah. It was always some kind of piece of shit. Um, it was you know it, everything was whatever we could just scrounge together. Yeah. And we'd have to learn how to make that sound okay. Mm. And we go to Launceston, and there'd be a band playing with like 
fucking brand new gold tops and orange stacks. And I'm like, how? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> where, where, do you, where are you getting this money from? <laughs> Your music's terrible. Like, it's just generic <laughs> shit. Yeah. But you sound amazing. Yeah. Um, that, I mean, that, that stuff's like, I think, for me, I had a similar thing with, you know, money and things like that as well. Like, it was, at the time, it was... Mum was happy to help me out with whatever, but to the extent of like, you can have it, but you need to know how to use it and you need to be using it all the time. Like, so I was, you know, when I first started playing music, I would say like properly as invested as I am now, I was playing drums and, you know, obviously a drum kit's like an enormous outlay for any parent because of the noise and the space it takes up and it's supremely expensive. And, but I remember mum, like the whole agreement was like, I had to do drum lessons. I had to play in the school band and then I had to practice just so, and then outside of that, I could do whatever I want. That sounds pretty reasonable. But it, it, exactly. It is awesome. Yeah. She was great. It is great. Um, but yeah, the whole thing was just like, I think she wanted me to understand, which I'm grateful for, like that, like her purchasing me that thing didn't mean that I could just let it you know rust away in the garage or something like i needed to understand like however much money it was 500 bucks or whatever it was like that's a lot of money you know like for 13 years old that's a huge investment to give a 13 year old something worth 500 dollars yeah where in hindsight now people are giving kids ipads and stuff that's worth well, way yeah, more right. but like at the time you know that was a big undertaking and that that being said i value everything my mom forced upon me in that regard though because it ultimately made me way more conscious of what i was doing with money and gear and things like that but then as well like understanding that you need to get basics down under some you know like you know you can't you shouldn't just go willy-nilly into these things which i think i'd up until that point i'd done with every other instrument you know like can i ask you an important question go on was it a power beat no but I remember the only reason I didn't get a drum kit of that sort of ilk was because a friend of mine worked at the music store and we got upsold to like a Yamaha. It was a Yamaha kit. We got upsold to a Yamaha, but then we got a discount to bring it to a similar price as the Power Beat. Nice. So like, I think I dodged a bullet there. That being said, I reckon I've probably played in my life on maybe 100 power beat kick drums. <laughs> Every, everyone has, surely. Yeah. And a, another, a, a really big one was the first friend of mine who I went to his house and he had a drum kit with two kick drums, which was obviously, Amazing. you know, all I wanted at the time. And he had one, like he had a full kit. And then he just, his dad had clearly gone to cash converters and just bought a kick drum from cash converters. And it was some like way smaller, like a, <laughs> you know, like a really thin jazz sort of kick drum or something, like an old Ludwig or something. Fuck, in hindsight, that's probably actually really cool. Absolutely. As a kick drum. Yeah, yeah. It's probably like the best part of that kit. But it was so funny seeing things like, and then for years and years and years, even when I was playing in hardcore bands, like actually playing shows. I had two kick drums and one was bright orange because that was the only one I could get. My whole rest of my kit was like a dark purple and then I had a bright orange <laughs> kick drum, second kick drum. I um, I really wanted uh, 
a Boss ME50. Yep. Uh, when I was when I was sort of 18, 19. So many knobs on it. So many pedals. <laughs> and you'd, like, you'd go... And you'd, um, but I couldn't afford one. Yeah. But this guy that I knew that worked in the music shop said, oh, look, I'll, I'll sell you my, my multi-effects processor if you want. <laughs> for, um, I, he was, it wasn't much. I don't remember what he sold it to me for. But I was like, yeah, all right, cool. And what it was was about eight different boss pedals and and there was I know there was a boss tuner and there was an EQ yep. um, and an OD1 clutch pedal yeah uh, there was there was a metal zone there was a flanger and a phaser and a chorus and a delay I think yeah and this electrical engineer dude in Hobart mm-hmm. called Hutch had taken all the circuitry out, yep. mounted it in a single chassis with uh, with with this sort of solenoid switch, and he'd he'd made the switch out of an old memory man, I think. So it was this big metal um, cast iron thing with with a bunch of just knobs that had been drilled into the thing. Yeah, right. And this big cable that's kind of screwed into it, <laughs> and it look it was like it was held together with gaffer tape. It had like had like a couple of blocks of timber under it just to set it up because for some reason the, the power supply was mounted on the bottom <laughs> so you had to ha, it had to be upside down yeah. and we just called it the flux capacitor and it was that was my sound for like five years <laughs> ten years it's still it's still in the shed somewhere that's great it's incredible and half the things didn't work and it was great that's so awesome that's such a great way to, I remember I a, a friend of mine Rowan who I play in a band with today still he I got it was so I, yeah I played drums forever and then I wanted to start playing guitar in bands and I'd always had a guitar but I had like a Squire Strat a green Squire Strat for the longest time and then I still had that and I bought when I was in like year 10 I bought a BC Rich like brutal death yes. metal guitar and I had that for a couple of years but I sold it thinking like I'll buy a better guitar sold it and then realized like oh buy better like everything better than a crap bc rich costs at least like six hundred dollars seven hundred dollars and i had no time or money for that and rowan had this like beat up real fake les paul that was like the lightest guitar ever and if you've ever held a les paul that's not the weights they're meant to be (laughs) and it was like it was literally it felt like cardboard basically and he gave me this guitar and it was bright green on the front and like brown on the back. It was the weirdest thing ever. And he, he was just like, you can have 50 bucks. So I bought this guitar for 50 bucks. I painted it like the whole <laughs> front of it, the same color as the back, which is like a brown. So it looked like wood. But the paint I used was just like house paint from the garage. <laughs> like just so it wasn't this sparkly green. I painted this guitar up. And then when we started I Exist, that was the guitar I recorded like the demo with. And all I did to it was I just put like a Seymour Duncan pickup in this piece of shit like <laughs> cardboard guitar. And I remember like on that demo, in bet- like there was, there's one song on the demo where 
you can hear me tuning it back into the note in like an open <laughs> chord part, like a bah, big, you know, D beat drums. And you can kind of hear in the background the note go like, a little bit because I was like playing it and I could hear that it was going out of tune. And I was just like, oh, fuck, <laughs> got to do it now. <laughs> like, Amazing. Yeah. But that's one of those things like that's definitely somewhere at mum's house still, that guitar. And I mean, it's probably terrible. That pickup's probably, it's, you know, I should probably go get that pickup at least. But. First guitars though, there's something yeah. about them. Yeah. Hey, uh, can we just, I've got to get another drink. Can we have a word from our sponsors here? Yep. Good one. Go get a drink. Back from the bar. Hey. Um... Where were we? Just talking we shit talking about guitars. Yeah. yeah, fun. All right, let's talk. Let's talk about y- your current musical adventure. Um, which, which one? Well, you okay. you playing yeah. music with the insiders. Yeah. How did this come together for you? Obviously, um, you've been doing it for quite a while now. Yeah, uh, over ten years. Yeah. Um, so, like I said, I was in this indie band for you know for years and years in Hobart mm-hmm. and. Um, I just kind of got burned out from music altogether. Yeah. They, the drummer really wanted to make it a, a big thing, so we were pushing hard, and I just started hating music and hating, hating the industry. And Yeah. And the thing was, like like I said, we were doing heaps of supports. Like, you know, every second band that came down from Melbourne to play at the Republic, um, we'd, we'd get asked to play with. Yeah. But they were all trying to get famous I mean not not our band necessarily but the bands we were playing with yeah you know they were were trying to make it and there's no sense of camaraderie there's no community yeah just like can we borrow your gear yep thanks that's it can you fuck off out of the band room (laughs) um um and you know there was never any oh if you come to Melbourne like let's you know hit us up we'll help you out yeah yeah absolutely none of that everyone's just an arsehole yeah trying to shit on everyone else to to get a new triple j single kind of thing Mm. and um i hated it yeah i just i stopped and i didn't play or write for maybe 12 months yep um and then when i started playing again i kind of was having fun and and just said to richard the who's still the bass player like do you want to do this thing um i don't care if anyone likes it or not let's just have fun yeah and that's all it was that's what the insiders was was just me just wanting to write songs and and play and have fun yeah and i said from the start like if i go bankrupt who gives a shit yeah it's just like no one's gonna get anything out of this yeah let's do it um and ironically as soon as i stopped trying like it kind of became more successful in a way yeah people liked it mm-hmm. I, d- I mean that's the basically the same experience I had too was when I ba- basically when I stopped caring about what people thought and I also stopped caring about what <coughs> um, like I just you know said to the people in the band I was like I j- I'm gonna write these songs if you like them great if you don't tell me why you don't like them and we'll figure it out but like I don't I'm not writing them for anybody other than us like I want it to be fun playing with you and we're playing together because we have fun playing together so that's that's it and that's what has brought me the most 
you know, I don't want to say success because I'm not musically successful, but like the best experiences and the, the yeah. played the best shows, done the, the most things with those bands that like, I just didn't care. <laughs> like, it's I, a freedom. There's so much freedom in that. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so that was, yeah, that was over 10 years ago. Like the first album came out in 2008. Yeah. I think. Um, And it's still going. Like, Richard's still in the band. Yeah. Um, we had, like, our drummers kept moving to Melbourne. Yeah. Essentially. Uh, our keys player moved to London. <coughs> our guitarist kind of started working on his sort of electronic stuff a bit more. So, mm-hmm. uh, Richard and I were the only the only two from the start. Yeah. But we're pretty, pretty settled now. Well, we were, except Lombie's just decided to move to Croatia, our guitarist. I didn't know that. Yeah. He's, Bloody uh, hell, Lombie. I know. He's in love. He's and he's look. It's, he's so happy. He's stoked. Like he yeah. just keeps sending his photos of, of how stoked he is in life, and it's <laughs> so beautiful there. It's amazing. Yeah. So it's it's great. Um, but you know, otherwise we've been pretty stable. Yeah. For, for a while now. Yeah. And so what what's like the talk me through the progression you you've seen yourself go through to get to this new record? Okay. Well, from that starting point. Um, at, at that stage I just discovered like Ryan Adams and Uncle Tupelo and Whiskey Town and I was still like right into the Lemonheads and UMI so mm-hmm. so I was just trying to write this acoustic kind of narrative based uh, stuff that had sort of overtones of country sure not necessarily stylistically but sonically mm-hmm. uh, like I really like the instrumentation and the sounds of that stuff so that's what the first incarnation was all about. Yeah. And again, like I was ripping people off, and I didn't give a shit because, like, yeah, I, I was guess. just doing You're it. Having fun. Like, I, there's songs in the first album that are just blatantly Beatles songs or blatantly <laughs> Ryan Adams songs, and who cares? Like, yeah. Um. But then in the meantime, I started playing in uh, Ride the Ride the Tiger mm-hmm. in uh, in this punk band, and I'd I'd met uh, Jamie Hay and Darren Gibson and and Josh Mann and. Uh, and sort of they were inviting me over to Melbourne to play house mm-hmm. shows and park shows and, and pub shows and, and I'd, uh, I'd kind of been introduced to a whole lot of new music that I'd never yeah. just, like I didn't grow up on punk at all I sure. came, came to that way later um, and at that stage I was still just sort of discovering it a lot of stuff for the first time mm-hmm. um, so by the time Resonation came out like that influence was coming through a lot more strongly. Yeah, like I'd, I like I'd play. I remember playing shows with Jamie and going, "I want to. I just want to be like that. Like that's, that's <laughs> so amazing." Yeah. Um. So even though like sonically we went a bit more acoustic, um, <clears throat> in terms of the delivery, it's a bit more punk rock. I think. Yeah. I guess, and I've, I kind of felt at home in that in that community like like I said after having coming from that um, that indie rock background like all of a sudden we're in this um, I'm playing punk rock shows in Adelaide and the bands are picking us up from the airport and going yeah. we can stay at our house and use all our stuff and take all the money like why, <laughs> why is that weird yeah. to you and I'm like are you, are you kidding me yeah um, and I I felt so welcomed and so comfortable mm. and, and everyone was so supportive of what I was doing as well yeah that that uh, it just 
that, that really pushed me forward mm. and sort of made me want to go further in that direction, I, I think. Yeah. But then as soon as that record came out, like we were already... We'd been playing those songs as an acoustic three-piece, essentially, or, you know, drums, bass, and me on acoustic. Yeah. Um, but by the time the album came out, we were starting to play electric mm-hmm. a lot more, and then Lombie joined. So even three or four years ago, we were just doing rock shows without yeah. an acoustic guitar, and, like, I already knew that's what the next record was going to be. Sure. More of a, <clears throat> a rock thing. Yeah. Um, I remember listening to a Converge record... It was when um, All You Love You Leave Behind came out. Yeah. And that was the first time I'd ever heard Converge. Wow. I just okay. went, oh my God, this is incredible. <laughs> and just drop tuned my guitar and just tried to learn all these riffs. Yeah. And uh, and I was listening to some um, Polar Bear Club and Make Do and Mend. Mm-hmm. And I was writing stuff that would... I, I didn't know if it was going to be Ride the Tiger stuff or Insider stuff. Sure. Um, and some of it ended up being Insider's yeah uh, like Newcastle is one of the songs on the new record that, mm-hmm. that definitely came out of that yeah and and I, I love that song and I knew that I wanted that to be the centerpiece of the record I just had to figure out how I could make a record that that would that would work <laughs> fit on. around yeah. yeah so um, so yeah it was always going to be a rock record but there was a, toward the end definitely a conscious effort to to make that work yeah and has it been like a different process and in terms of like preparing it, like practicing and doing that sort of stuff. Did you have to change much in how you were approaching, like setting that music up to go live? I suppose as well, because it's it's a. I mean, I know I don't, and this I don't know because I've not done like acoustic things before myself. But like, surely that's a different mindset that you got to get into to play. Yeah, this is a really interesting thing. Um, the, the reason that I dropped it in there's no insider's name on the last record mm-hmm. is that the re- the insiders lived in Melbourne by that stage yeah and I actually had another band called The East yep. in Hobart mm-hmm. so I mean that's the oh, it's all my songs so I, I'd, and I'd, I'd run this past the band and everyone was fine yeah. I didn't feel like I was offending anybody <laughs> by, by playing with the one band in Hobart and one band in uh, the rest of the country but all the pre-production for Resonation was done with the East sure. this other band <clears throat> up to a point anyway yeah. up to a point and then the insiders sort of took over the rest of it um, so this album w- was different in that it was a band project from the start like sure. all, all the songs were fleshed out jamming mm-hmm. you know and playing live yeah um, before they went to tape so yeah it was a completely different process and it, yeah. it, it I mean I'm still a bit of a despot you know sometimes when I'm working, <laughs> working with my songs but but it was definitely a little more democratic and much more collaborative yeah in the, the writing process and we you know we were playing them live and jamming them out live and yeah and so do you feel that like do you feel that's positively affected the songs then having that other influence in it I, yeah I mean absolutely yeah um, it's it's a different process mm. uh, and and it's something that I learned a long time ago that I have to remind myself occasionally is that you just have to like as soon as I start if, as soon as I forget myself and start trying to be too controlling and, and, and just think that I have this vision that I want to achieve then nobody's happy yeah like it's never going to be what 
I fantasize about in my in my head. Yeah. And the, nobody's going to feel like they have any ownership over it. Um, and it's not it's not the product of a, of a positive conflict. Yeah. Uh, and when I say positive conflict, I mean you know the way that di- different uh, different ideas and opinions sort of clash in a positive way to create something that no one had thought yeah. of. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I, I think one of the things that was the biggest sort of learning curve for me with like writing songs is that, you know, people can like parts of a song and not like other parts. And it's okay if someone gives you something that's better than what you had. Yeah. Like, and, but I remember, I honestly, I can still remember like, the first couple times people showed me things and I know I knew that I liked what they'd showed me better than what I'd written but still there was a part of me that's like that's not the fucking part man I wrote this part but then and then you know in hindsight it's like that would end up being what like makes the song and even if other people don't like it I end up loving that part more because it's where it sits you know and I think I've been fortunate that I've played with people who are quite good at contributing those little bits and adding those little parts in and i think like if anything on the records and songs and stuff that i've been a part of that i haven't done the bulk of the writing i feel like i'm now like so eager to try and contribute those little things because i know the satisfaction i can get out of it i feel like that's my job in outright (laughs) um because i mean i don't have the i don't feel confident that i have the background to to come up with the the essence of Sure. Of these um, sort of hardcore songs, but I, I think that I'm pretty firmly placed to be that voice. Yeah. Go, well, this is gonna maybe this is gonna work better. <coughs> that's a good place to be. <laughs> um, so I think that's what I love about producing as well. Yeah. As as you know, you have a band that that's written amazing songs, and they come in, and then and then you say, look, this is great, but have you considered that this is going to work, or if you what about if you do this? Yeah. And there's a creativity in that that I. I really, really enjoy. Maybe it's because it's a creativity that you don't have to be creative for. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can sit on the chair. Yeah, that's right. Is that something that you're going to like continue doing? Is that something you sort of oh, always keen to do? I or? love doing it. Yeah. Um, if I, if any, if people want to work with me, then I'm going to jump at the chance. That, but there's so many people in Melbourne that do it better yeah. than I do, cheaper than I do. <laughs> so, like, I'm not going to push it by any stretch. Yeah. Um, but I do love doing it. There you go. If anyone's keen, <laughs> your boy's ready to sit in a chair and pick out some riffs for just, you. I'll just, just pay me to tell you what you're doing wrong. <laughs> a good position to be in. Um, so what's like plans then moving moving on now that the, the record's coming out? What's the what's the go from here? Uh, so we've got a tour coming up um, through August and September. Yep. Uh, and then... The weekend is coming up pretty soon. Mm-hmm. I really want to. I do this this type of show where I sit on a couch. Yep. Um, I think if we can take anything from today, it's that I enjoy sitting. Yes, yeah, so we've heard a lot of that. Uh, you are sitting right now. <laughs> I'm sitting <laughs> uh, and drinking. Yes. So this, I do this couch show where I um, we set up a little lounge room on stage, and then it's, it's normally a residency where yep. over the month I get a, a different couple of guests to come and sit on the couch and we just do this we just talk shit but then, yeah. we, then we play some songs and talk some more shit awesome um, and I really enjoy doing it I feel like it's part <laughs> gig part talk show it's great um, and I, th- I, I want to try and tour it so I've done it twice here in Melbourne I've done it once in Newcastle yeah um, 
and I think it could be heaps of fun if I could get it on the road. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, I feel like I've made enough friends over the last you 20 could, years. You definitely find people I'll, to be a part of it. I'll find someone. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm trying to put that together at the moment. Hopefully mm-hmm. that'll happen at the end of the year and then yeah, sick. we'll probably do another band tour next year and uh, have an, an acoustic EP that we want to want to put out and maybe yeah. maybe have a live a live studio video at the same time. you got a lot on. I don't have the songs to do it, but, <laughs> but we want to do you it. you got the ideas. And we want to do it before Lombie goes. We, yeah. You know, we, we want to get get that on tape get some value out of him before he pisses <laughs> off well I mean he, he kind of joined the band on the, on the proviso that he was playing pedal steel because he just bought a pedal steel and he taught himself to play it yeah. it's like fuck yeah I'm just going to just going to focus on this and that happened at exactly the same time that I've sort of gone oh I kind of want to play electric guitar <laughs> uh, so we haven't really had a chance to to um, kind of use his talents there because he's you know practice tapes he's turned into a bit of a, a gun on the steel <laughs> So you gotta get some. You gotta milk that. I I want to. Yeah. yeah. Um, we haven't asked him about it, but I'm. I'm <laughs> this is the platform. Yep. This is the appropriate. Are you platform. listening, Lumbi? <laughs> Lumbi, you vid. Put on, put on task, mate. Get into it. <laughs> Otherwise, you're out of the band. <laughs> Stay in Croatia. All right. Was well, there any other things you would like to plug? Um, there are some great bands that, and acts that have put out records lately go on um, what do you want to tell us about uh, what are some of your faves I'm gonna no no I don't want to play favourites <laughs> I, um, I listen to a I listen to a band I, I, I mix at a pub occasionally I listen to this I mixed a band called Carb on Carb last night okay and, uh, and they were great yep I really like that Rachel Maria Cox album comes out previous guest of the podcast yesterday I think yesterday yep. or today um, or whenever this goes to air, so <laughs> a while ago. Um, oh, you know, that's fine. Listen to music. Listen to music. Enjoy. All music's good. And I used to tell my students this when I taught songwriting that you don't learn anything from something that you already like. Yeah. Listen to something that you hate and actually figure out why you hate it, and you might learn something. Yeah. Assess how you could do better. Or. <laughs> Figure out why you don't like Figure something. Figure out why you don't like it. That's yeah. the important thing, I think. Because it actually says more about you than it does the music when you don't like something. Yeah. I Unless agree. it's just shit. Yeah. Well, that could be true too. All right. Well, thanks for talking to me. No, thanks for allowing me. <laughs> it's fine. Anytime. <laughs>